Commercial Cash Flow Show. Hey guys, Brandon Buto and Martin Gore here with the Commercial Cash Flow Show. Third week of client questions. We only have three this week because a few others were all regarding funding and we're going to do an extended episode on the questions about funding because there's a myriad of different avenues we could take with that one. So, well, a couple of things, well, three uh, specifically came up uh, this past week, Brandon. Um, there is another one though. I found this out. Um, did you know that being a waiter is a difficult job? <laughs> it is. I, I assume but perspective on the table. <laughs> this guy. <laughs> <laughs> So the first question. How do we title that one? (laughs) So one of the questions that came that that, uh, came across is what is an AIA contract? Um, As most of you may know, it's American Institute of Architects, and it's basically a it's an organization that was created by architects to standardize contract or or, uh, contracting as it relates to projects. Uh, The significance of it as a subcontractor is that you are uh, given a certain set of stipulations as to how you get your money. Now, um, there is a process that you go through when the, when, when, the, when the contract is done. Let me take a step back for a second. The, the AIA is a standardized contract by this organization. What's the difference between that and a regular contract? Regular contract is two people coming to terms. Any, anything can be a contract, mm-hmm. obviously. Any agreement, it's, it fits the... Um, four corners of the contract, obviously. Sure. Uh, but typical paper contract, non-AIA would be two parties or m- more than two parties coming together to right. have amicable terms. Now, I don't want to get into and preface this. We're not attorneys. Neither one of us are licensed Do attorneys. Do consult with a licensed attorney at law, not an attorney, in fact, uh, before entering into a contract that you feel a little bit uh, to address your, your specific concerned with needs and circumstances. The other, uh, some of the, some of the, the, the positives of an AIA contract is, you know, what, like what you were talking about where it's kind of two, two people coming together to, um, you know, agree on something. And sometimes that works out and, and sometimes it can, whereas the AIA is standardized verbiage, really the only, Thing you're changing are where you're doing the work, how much you're going to get, get paid, and who are the players involved. But all the verbiage, verbiage, and forms is, are standardized. Is standardized as well as the process and how contractors get paid, any grievance services or grievance uh, applications or what have you. Um, so, and it's customizable to your to your specific project. Um, it allows you to set retainage for a specific amount that isn't. Oftentimes included in you know a two-party contract. Uh, sometimes that might happen, but more often than not, more often than not, it doesn't. Whereas with an AIA, it's it's kind of given. It's going to happen uh, with the interest of uh, protecting the, uh, the the architects. Now, it's also been my experience that um, the AIAs can be expensive. Um, there's retainage by default. You know, if you've got a contract between you and whomever and you don't want to get into a retainage thing, maybe it's, you know, a 10, 10% up front, pay me when I'm finished, whereas the retainage is just going to happen right off the bat and that money's being held from you 
uh, being the person performing the services until the AIA contract uh, aspects are satisfied. Yeah. So, so there is that that drawback, and it might, it might also limit you as a subcontract subcontractor uh, access to certain information about the project. This is true. In a former life, I did quite a few AIA contracts, and the G seven hundred three, the scope of work, uh, all standardized. Right, you submit your however the however the mm-hmm. master contracts written. You submit your billings that month and they pay out the following month after architectural approval. The difference also is you're probably going to be required to do prevailing wage. Um, yes. Uh, on, the, on these type of contracts. Especially important when you're dealing with states that might have a prevailing wage that's significantly higher from maybe your headquarters. Exactly. That's what I was going to get at. If you're going into an AIA contract, it is I, I haven't personally dealt with one that wasn't prevailing wage because that, that comes with the territory. So if you know you're bidding a job that's an AIA job, be sure to check the prevailing wage for the labor positions that you have under you. I know when I was doing concrete, they consider a form setter, a, um, a lumber specialist, right? Uh, that's what that's what it, they did on a project. Right. And the federal, I was doing government work, the federal AIA prevailing wage for a form setter in concrete was like three or four times what, what they the local earning, yeah. the local wage was. So that can really throw your contract numerics. And also, if you don't have an accounting system or a payroll or a contracting system that's set up for those numerics, those numbers can go real crazy real quick. And you're trying to put the worms back in the can uh, whenever it comes time to produce the documentation. So, so let, me, let me ask you this. If you had to do it all over again, you know, given that was what, what you've done in the past, you've got some experience with it um, and, you know, the line, what, what you're doing now, would you, what, what's your preference? Would you do an AIA? Would you do a, a, a one-off contract, you know, private party or? If you're going for the type of work that I was doing, you have no choice but to do AIA. Okay. Um, county, city, municipal, state, federal, uh, yes. uh, military. But it, all things equal, if I was given an opportunity. Given a choice between. Given the, the choice, I would absolutely go for the non-AIA contract. Reason being is I'm a little older, a little bit more accustomed to reading contracts these days. Read every page, pass it by an attorney. Um, There could be a clause in there on page 37 of 258 that it, 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 and you know what I find? A lot of the issuing parties of contracts, uh, let's say prime contractor, general contractor, A lot of the clauses in their contracts may not be legally binding, but they're there and they'll scare the hell out of you whenever it comes time to enforce those. Uh, a lot of those clauses have already been proven to not adhere to UCC, uh, Universal Commercial Code, for it's not mutually, it's not, it's not a mutual aspect of a contract, so it's a one-way uh, clause right. meant to wrangle someone in. However, if you're if you're none the wiser or you don't know any better and you read that, you think that you've been had and you don't realize that that's 
sure. might not hold up throughout. Kind of like clause to uh, quiet quiet you before a, a storm can be, even be thought thought about. But as we've stated, we're, we're, we are not licensed uh, attorneys. It, it, um, there are pros and cons to both between an AIA and a, uh, a private party contract, as, as Brandon's just ex- explained. But if you do get into an AIA, it is very wise, um, even if you do have experience with it, to to have a uh, an attorney review review uh, the contract before you enter into it. Um, there was another uh, question that came up. Um, before I get into that, though, I was talking to my cousin Vinny. Uh, you know, he lived, lives uh, up in the Bronx. He used to be out on uh, Bedford Stye. But he, he went really? down to the Bronx. Yeah, he went down to the Bronx. This guy. Cousin. Cousin's like cousin, cousin. You know, it's on my mother's side. Second cousin, twice removed. Yeah, well, lots of times removed. And we're not really sure how far removed Vinny is. But anyway, he claims to, to be a cousin. But he was telling me, that he, you know, he grew up in, in the Bronx, left, you know, did his thing out in Queens and Bedford Stuy and what have you. Tried to run a hustle out in Manhattan, didn't quite work. But anyway, end of the day, he ended up back in the Bronx. And he's, and he's telling me, he's like, Gore, you don't have. You, Oh, you don't know how things have gotten bad. It's so bad this neighborhood. You now, know? is he from Transylvania? No, he's not. No, he's not Dracula. You know, he's like a guy. You know, he's sitting on a street corner. <laughs> so Vinny tells me he's like, you know, I, you don't know how bad the, the the neighborhood's got. I was like, how bad has it gotten, Vinny? He's like, we renamed it. I was like, what is it? Spaghetto. <laughs> I live in a spaghetto. <laughs> Vinny's a nut. Vinny is a nut. Vinny's a, a crazy nut. guy. I don't think he's anybody's cousin, but... I'm my cousin Vinny I from think- Transylvania. <laughs> <laughs> so, the other question that came up, handshake deals. Can you enforce these Segway. Okay. Preface this. Are handshake deals enforceable to get paid? Sure. So, preface this. Not an attorney at law. Not an attorney at law. Right. Um... And every jurisdiction is slightly different on this. Absolutely. I do know that from experience, but handshake deals are technically contracts. That's the, that's the, the root of it. And the bigger question I think was the enforceability because that's the key. Ben, my experience is at one point for the most part, both parties have agreed and, Acknowledge they agreed to a contract. Something happens in the interim from that brokering to finalization, and that might influence the interpretation of a verbal handshake deal when it comes to fruition and trying to get paid. So what do you do? I have quite a bit of experience with a verbal deal that had five people in the room corroborated went to litigation the whole nine I have a um a legal synopsis for lack of a better word i had people from their company say yeah that's what was said and it was pretty simplistic pretty right. linear don't do this until i call or email you and whatever whatever the case was was to the tune of a lot of money don't do that so um They are a contract. However, how do you have this? There's a reason for a contract. And the reason is to iron out the details. Of course, I'm going to do X and you're going to pay me Y. Right. That's usually how a handshake deal goes. Right. 
whenever it screws up, that doesn't cover it, right? You didn't do X, you didn't do this, and this time you didn't inform me. There's a lot of specifics as for as far as communication protocols, uh, late date, you know, tons of stuff that is not going to be uh, delineated on a handshake deal. One of those being that came up was what about the rights for mediation or arbitration? Are you giving up that because you didn't enter into a state recognized? So, so I don't think you ever the contract or just, I don't think you, you never give up the rights to mediation or arbitration. Mm -hmm. Well, anybody can sue anybody for anything. Again, we're not attorneys, but we do all know that anybody can sue anybody for anything. Does that mean that it's not going to get thrown out on its face? No. However, mediation is usually in my experience, not an attorney, uh, mediation would be after we, we go through depositions and discovery. And then we're like, okay, we see where things are at. Let's go ahead and not take this another year or two. So it sounds to me like you're it's a mutual, it's going to be a mutual mediation almost always. Um, unless the judge orders mediation, mediation is non-binding arbitration. Some States have automatic arbitration clauses in any paper contract. So, uh, that right. I think that's what you were asking. Are you waiving that? If both parties agree that there was some kind of contract, I would think, first of all, you better better consult somebody in that jurisdiction. Secondly, I would assume that would be an automatically attaching uh, stipulation because if they do recognize verbal as a contract, which almost everywhere does, mm -hmm. and you both have agreed that there was some type of verbal agreement, then there would be... So by default, it was all the normal course of action is a written contract. Complete assumption. I.e. Yes, but okay. yes. So uh, there are a few exceptions to the handshake deal. Uh, again, it is um, tantamount that you contact uh, an attorney in your local jurisdiction because... Or the jurisdiction where this presumed contract... Taking place. Yes. Yes. Because they, they, it varies state by state. It can vary by municipality to municipality. Uh, but typically things that kind of might complicate a, um, uh, a written contract are if it's a promise to pay for another uh, debt of another person, like you're promising to pay somebody else's debt, that verbal contract might not override the contract you had with the person who owed you the debt initially. Again, we're not attorneys. You know, that's why you need to consult uh, your local counsel. Uh, with regard to that, but these are some some things that the commonalities that that come up, and also uh, any contract that involves the the sale or dis, uh, disposition or transfer of real assets, uh, such as you know homes and what have you, uh, or any agreement that you can't do within a year. <laughs> that's that's gonna uh, that's gonna be a real weird one. The yeah, the, the, the hey, real estate transaction with I the just deed. Bought your house. <laughs> Listen, County, just take our word for it. He's good. <laughs> we did all the title research. <laughs> At any rate, but that is, and also I do know this in majority of states, um, verbal contracts have a lessened statute of limitations yes. to written contracts. Most states are, it's almost half. So while verbal handshake deals could be enforceable, obviously it's best to have everything in writing, but that's a circumstance you're finding yourself in. It's better to be educated ahead of time than after the fact. So just make sure you know what your your local uh, uh, 
laws and procedures are as it relates to enforcing something like that if you're if you find yourself in that position. In in my experience, the safest way if you're doing a handshake deal to make that deal happen, if you're the one receiving the money, is part of that handshake needs to be the money passing into your hands. If that doesn't happen at that moment, put it on put it in writing. <laughs> yes. So So the, I'm out of dad jokes uh, for now. I can only remember two. <laughs> Another question that came up. Change orders. What are the key points in bettering success at getting paid for the additional work? You've got the consummate. You show up on a job site. Got a GC that's hired you. You're a tier, tier one sub. You're contracted to do specific wiring for this house. Well, they find that they need to do a little extra wiring for the outside lighting, but because the homeowner changed their minds and they want to go ahead and build out the patio that they were going to leave until later, and they ask you, the the subcontractor, hey, do this extra work. That in and of itself is the definition of a change order. You're changing the contract in its original form and are expected to perform additional work. The scope of work has now changed. Yes. So... There's a myriad of ways that this ends up happening. And it happened to me tons of times. And if you are a contractor or a subcontractor, this I can tell you from experience. And I, family, friends, know tons of uh, business owners. Don't get pigeonholed into, come on, just get it done. We'll send the paperwork three days later, right? I got, I, the office is lagging. We got to get it done in the field. No, do not. It's an emotional thing. It's, you know, the project manager out in the field. Um, We got to keep the project moving. Guess what? It's not my contract. It's your contract. I contracted with you. You have, you're the one that wrote the contract documents and definitely have purchase orders, change orders, time and material and everything written into the contract. Because at the time that that happens, you got to, you got to, for lack of a better word, man up and let them know, look, I'm not, I'm doing it your way. I'm submitting. You want to change this? I'm submitting the change order via whatever means that they had asked mm-hmm. and go about it in, in those channels. Don't start the work till the change order is given. Okay. We've, that last statement right there. Don't start the work until the change order is given and signed. And I also want to take you back to something else. You said, Oh, Hey, come on, just do it. We'll, 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 we'll every time, every time. So here, here's what in, 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 the, in the parties that I'm talking to, their fear is that if I, you know, put that kind of, well, in their mind, that kind of pressure on the GC, you know, they, they you know, hold their hands over them like you're lucky you got the job. Because they got your money, place. yeah. And if you want to get paid, you'll do this. What do you do? And I got another job for you next, yeah. whatever. Whatever the case may be, here's the deal. It's their contract, Right. That's the way a contract works. That's why you're a subcontractor Mm -hmm. or a general contractor sometimes to a prime contractor. You're not doing something that you're not pulling. um, You're not doing something that wasn't already written into the contract. You're asking them just to adhere to their own contractual terms, which they damn sure should. And if they nine times out of 10 will try and hold it over your head, you're slowing my project down. Right. No. You're slowing your project down. You had this written into your contract. You should have already had a system in place with whoever you have in your office or however it needs to go from your end. But I'm subcontracting for you, your change order policy or procedure or whatever the case may be. 
I'm not asking you to do something that we didn't agree on. I'm asking you to do exactly what we did agree on. And if they issue you a change order, if the contract says it has to be signed by two people, whatever, whatever the case may be, make sure that you know the verbiage. If it has to be assigned to change order by the director or whatever, make sure that that change order when it's sent to you is signed by the director, not an, not a unsigned change order, because that is a tactic I've seen crimes and generals use. As have I. Lots of times. Lots, lots of times. And sometimes even the subs can kind of get lost in the mix when they, they cut these, I look, I call them little one-off deals like, hey, do this extra concrete, do this extra electrical. I got you covered. I'll take care of you. And suddenly the GC or the prime has cut so many side deals, they've forgotten half of them. Unless you're the squeaky wheel sub, you might not ever get your money and saying, hey. Even if you are the squeaky wheel sub. Sometimes that might even pose a challenge if you don't have any sort of proof. Correct. And then it, it also limits your ability to be able to go after the entity that hired the prime in the first place. Because that's where the flow down contract comes from. Exactly. As a subcontractor, just so that you guys know this, your contract with the GC is actually an extension of the GC or prime's contract with the owner. That's why it's considered a subcontract. It is an amendment or addendum. It's an attachment where the contracts are flowing down. So there is one general contract but each subcontractor's separate um scope of work uh, you know different little idiosyncrasies sometimes they'll allow disclusion or inclusion right. of other clauses but um that is the way that it works but all general contracts mo well, I, can't, I guess i can't say all because i would have to know all things most general contracts will have a change order uh, policy. Most of them do. And Some the general portion, sometimes the subcontract, if they don't have a change order policy um, and that change order policy, sometimes depending on if you're a labor and materials mm -hmm. provider, will have the time of materials adder so that your, your margins built in, but it doesn't get out of hand too crazy. So that kind of leads into some of the things to pay attention to, like what you're talking about. Lumber. Um, That's a big deal right now. Well, lumber or any material well that's more the value of lumber right now well it's if that that if that time of material was built into the scope of work getting off subject but this is this is in the same uh right. manner people that how would that be handled if if you do a, a time of materials or maybe you do a bid or an estimate for a certain amount and then you know, the world goes topsy-turvy and suddenly lumber's like five times what it used to cost a lot right now right. and we uh have a client that's uh seven figure contract doubled and it's valid because of the cost of lumber lumber it was contracted in 2019 it was starting COVID, at right. late 2020 uh, so it's a real weird scenario whenever wow. a stick of lumber was 185 190 that's old and now it's eight dollars itself as far as doing this you know getting your commercial cash flow going you know post covid <laughs> It's that's a weird one. The lumber industry right now is very, very. They're also talking about gas getting a little squirrely too. So that's probably going to tie into it. More, what does more Vinny stuff. think about that? Vinny, uh, you know, uh, he's got a cousin who uh, drive, drives tanker trucks. And um, he says, you know, I don't know. I, I don't really trust what Vinny says these days, especially when he's you know, living in the spaghetto. That's crazy. So. Things to look for in a change order, change orders, the whole policy, the whole con conceptual act of it happening. Um, be clear 
on the change order policy in the contract. If it's their contract, make sure it's clear you understand it. If it's your contract, make sure it's clear they understand it. The absence of any whatsoever is pretty much going to put your fate in the hands of who knows, a big fat question mark. Uh, make sure they're in writing, any change orders. Um, what Brandon was referring to, hey, you know, do this for me. I got you. I'll take care of it. And just, you know, on, on the sly. It, it's going to feel, and if if, if you're newer. Oh, especially uh, it, if you're new and you've it, if you haven't one big dealt job. through this, uh, dealt with this before, it's, it's going to be an emotional push from their part because they tend to be pretty good at it. Mm-hmm. Your point is you're not, you're not pulling anything tricky. You're trying to adhere to the purchase order uh, process. Right. And I've seen it. It's got to be thousands of times and it's the same song and dance each time. Do this. Look, I got an extra budget built into this, but whatever the case may be, we got another job. It's only a $20,000 job. We'll give you $50,000, whatever, whatever. doesn't matter. No, I just want to be paid what we contracted for. So kids learn from Brandon, Mr. Buteau, and make sure that your change orders are signed, acknowledged. It's easier to learn from my mistakes. By the contract, <laughs> sign or authorized party, make sure there's detail, dates, times, if it's material, how much was it, where was it delivered, who signed off on for it, memorialize everything. Do, do. here, and, and that's Even the other thing. I don't want to say do this. But as far as all of these, all, all of these are memorialization mm-hmm. aspects of of doing work and how whenever you're in the middle of doing a project, uh, you know, 15 minutes here to fill, whatever, if you don't have that process in place, get it in place because the year or two later, or when something does go wrong, it's easy when everything's fine, but when something goes wrong and it will, if you do enough work, you are going to be, up the creek without a paddle because it, especially if you got to go to court, if you got to go to court, documentation is everything. Absolutely. And memorialization, and, but and to make the memorialization pretty much uh, almost a, a, an autopilot act is what you were talking about. Have a systemic procedure in place yep. when A happens. B and, and it can be a simple, it can, it can be a simple process, an internal process. It right. could, a one per, a one man band can do it, but you gotta, you gotta adhere to your own process. So uh, another thing is I said, if it goes to litigation, documentation is key. Another key is, you have proper documentation sometimes you can avert litigation because even oftentimes when you go to whomever is and, you, and, and you're, you're working and it out give them that information suddenly that, their tune might change exactly so well, I didn't know documentation that. may avert litigation which is all in, in my opinion is a good thing absolutely uh, coming to terms professionally and getting something handled is way better than litigation because I know going to litigation there are a couple of people that always win, and that's the attorneys. They make good money. <laughs> and my wife. <laughs> that's another episode of Commercial Cash Flow Show <laughs> with Martin Gore and Brandon Buteau and guest guest uh, guest speaker uh, cousin Vinny, Transylvanian from the Bronx. Transylvanian from the Bronx. Hey yo, if you have any questions, questions at commercialcashflowshow.com. And look forward to talking about the business funding next week. Should be an extended episode. 
Ooh, more dad jokes. There we go. I'll Pennsylvania. Call in Vinny. Commercial cash flow show.